Oh, good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to welcome Vincent Puglia to Mershon. Uh, Vincent is an assistant professor of political science at McGill University uh, in Canada. He is one of the young rising stars of the Canadian IR firmament. He's just published uh, the following book, which I now notice is actually this book, uh, International Security in Practice. He's also published in uh, a very important article in uh, International Organization, The Logic of Practicality, International Relations, as well as publications in ISQ and the Journal of Peace Research. And um, I just learned today that uh, Vincent has begun work as you probably know, uh, the logic of practicality and security in NATO has uh, much to do with uh, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, and his current work is combining uh, the practice theory of Bourdieu, uh, in particular, as he calls it, the sense of place in international organization. But today we're going to hear about uh, international security in practice. Uh, thank you, Vincent. Thanks, Ted. Uh, all right, just going to turn this on. Thank you, Ted, for a very kind uh, uh, presentation and thank you for being here. Um, it's an honor to be at Mershan and uh, I'm grateful for the invitation. Um, what I want to do today is basically sort of uh, try to introduce some of the main ideas that I develop uh, in my book. Uh, and uh, obviously, it would be a little hubristic to try to take you through the full tour. So I'll focus on some of the points that I believe. Uh, uh, are the most uh, important, or at least where I'm trying to make the most, um, uh, where my contribution uh, hopefully uh, might be for IR theory uh, on one side, and uh, a better understanding of NATO, Russia, Russian Atlantic, Russian Western relationship in the post-Cold War era. So I'll, I'll do this in two times, then first try to explain what practice theory consists of, uh, which is obvious, I guess, in the title, International Security in Practice. I'm going to try also to illustrate how it can contribute to our understanding of uh, international politics. And then uh, the second step of my talk, second part, is going, is going to focus on the case study that I developed in the book, which is about the uh, diplomatic relationship between NATO uh, member states and the Russians after the end of the Cold War, so 92 uh, to 2008, pretty much. All right, so let me begin with social uh, practice theory. Uh, practice theory is a very large tent, you know, with many campers inside. They don't get along very well all the time, so I'm not going to be able to do justice to the whole theoretical perspective here. Uh, my inspiration mainly is, uh, as Ted mentioned, Pierre Bourdieu, uh, who's a famous French uh, sociologist, uh, who I think brings one main insight. If I were to reduce his uh, contribution to, uh, did I? to one big idea, which I think is especially productive for us to understand social, uh, uh, social processes and politics, I think it's this idea that there is something about practices, and here practices mean simply pattern meaningful actions. Uh, there is something about practices that the theoretical point of view alone will not be able to capture in full. Right? Um, or to put it differently, the act of doing something, whether it's diplomacy or something else, uh, cannot be grasped solely through the representations that as theorists or observers or social scientists uh, we can make of the deeds. And a classic example that practice theorists use is uh, that of a chef uh, whose cooking practices in the action clearly cannot be grasped simply by uh, through a recipe, right? 
uh, one does not become a chef simply by learning recipes by heart. There is something about the practice itself, the doing, the deed, that is specific uh, and that cannot be grasped simply with models and representations. Right? It's part of the action. It's enacted in action. And I try to bring this insight to the security community research program in international relations and problematize the starting point that one finds uh, in Adler and Barnett, also in, in Alexander Wendt, which is to sort of start with cognitive identity as the main mechanism that explains security communities uh, or peace. And I tried to act actually reverse this, uh, this mechanism, turn it on its head, so to speak, by uh, trying to capture interstate peace as a very practical way to engage with day-to-day -day diplomacy. Um, and a main contention, which I will discuss and develop uh, in a few minutes, is that in practice, uh, peace or, or pacification rests on the self-evident enactment of diplomacy. So that when security practitioners engage in the nonviolent settlement of disputes as if it were you know, the natural way to go, the axiomatic way to go, then they come to debate with diplomacy, but not about the opportunity of diplomacy. Uh, diplomacy sort of becomes a common sense, right, from which further interaction, strategic, uh, normative, argumentative, becomes possible. And this is what I call peace in and through practice. Um, just before I go further into international politics per se, I think it's, it's useful to explore some of the main implications of practice theory uh, in terms of uh, uh, our analysis, not only of international politics, but of the social world in general. And let me draw four main implications out of this insight that practices have a logic that cannot be fully grasped by through representations and models. Um, the, well, that's the question that I'm asking. Sorry, I skipped that one. So the question is here, uh, on the ground of international politics, you know, how do daily interactions between representatives whose states are at peace differ from those of rival states? That's you know, this sort of angle that I'm trying to take precisely to understand peace as a practical relation to the world instead of necessarily as uh, sort of deriving from a prior collective identity or weeness, as Karl Deutsch um, would put it. All right, back to the implications. The first one, I believe, is that in everything that people do, uh, there is always a practical substrate, uh, which doesn't derive uh, from conscious or uh, thoughtful uh, reflections, whether it's instrumental, rule-based, communicative, uh, or else. So there's always this essential dimension of practice, which is a result of a kind of a, a practical knowledge, as I call it, and I'm going to define this in a few minutes, uh, which makes what is to be done sort of appear self-evident or commonsensical. Uh, and the, an example that's kind of uh, used by practice theorists, I think it's Charles Taylor who, who uses it, is uh, how to follow an arrow, right? So let's imagine for a second that uh, uh, some outsider unf unfamiliar with the way that you know, we do things here, uh, how that uh, uh, outsider might misunderstand what probably appears to everybody in this room like a very simple and straightforward rule, right, or instruction. You know, you want to get to town, just follow the arrow, right? Um, and what Taylor says is, well, suppose that, uh, you know, in this person's society, the natural way to follow an arrow would actually be to follow the feathers. Uh, and he sort of imagines a scenario that, you know, these guys have, there are no arrows in that outsider's culture, but rather laser guns that sort of fan out this way, right? And so that, you know, in their own historical contingent development of meaning and technology, actually, you know, the direction goes in the direction of the feathers, right? So the point of this is that even when we do something as basic as following a rule, uh, 
uh, it's not only about the explicit part of the practice, but we always start from somewhere. In this case, that to follow an arrow, you follow the point. Uh, and that this practical basis, largely tacit and inarticulate, matters in politics that we need to understand it. Um, a second implication, um, which derives obviously from the first one, is that as social scientists, um, we should focus not only on what people think about, but also on what they think from, right? So the example of the arrow sort of uh, makes that point. Um, I guess that that implication is important because social theory has been quite heavily biased toward representational knowledge. Um, you know, uh, rational choice theory is kind of an obvious example in which, you know, desires, beliefs, preferences sort of precede action. Uh, but I believe that uh, constructivism, at least the way that it's um, developed in international relations, uh, also falls victim to a large extent um, to this representational bias. In the book, I sort of try to review a bit the different ways that constructivists have theorized the logic of appropriateness. Mm -hmm. Uh, the externalism, internalism distinction I, I, I borrow from Ole Jacob Sending, it's basically um, to mean where the uh, uh, reflection or whether a reflection happens between, in between the, the rule and its application, right? So obviously the, the, those scholars who come closer to kind of more practical understanding of uh, social action would fall under internalism. Uh, which would construe uh, logic of appropriateness as a structural logic of action or as habituation, right? So that's uh, Ted Hupf's uh, uh, work, uh, for instance. Now, building on this, uh, what I try to do in the book is sort of bring the background knowledge to the foreground of analysis, right? Uh, say, this is not to say that, the, you know, what people think about, what they what they talk about, what they think about, what they strategize about. That's not to say that these things don't matter, not at all. But it's rather to say, well, we know a lot about these things, but we don't know that much about what they think from, right? We don't know that much about how is it possible that, uh, you know, when we want to follow an arrow, we all know how to do it. We never question how we did it. And yet there is nothing that self-evident if we just take a step back and think about it for a second. Um, and so I tried to distinguish, obviously it's a heuristic distinction, between two types of knowledge, right? Kind of, you know, uh, the, the classical distinction was between knowing that and knowing how. Um, that's, uh, um, and then I tried to sort of explain the different ways in which um, uh, these uh, types of knowledge are always, uh, you know, uh, intermingled. They always combine together in each and every practice, but there's still a point in distinguishing them. And, you know, the, the, uh, I guess the type of reasoning here, which I borrow from uh, Ted's works, uh, you know, uh, in terms of representational knowledge, the reasoning is in situation X, you should do Y, whether it's for instrumental, instrumentally rational reasons or normative reasons, right, whether it's consequences or appropriateness. Uh, whereas in terms of practical knowledge, there is something unthinking in which in situation X, uh, Y simply follows. And this sort of leads me to a third implication, which is sort of already there in the relation to practice here, uh, row in the table, uh, which is to say that, you know, in social theory, we tend to conceive, most social theorists at least tend to conceive of action as following from certain forms of ideations, right? Whether it's uh, interests, preferences, desires, beliefs, 
what you see typically is uh, those ideations preceding practice. Um, and it's the, case in, it's the case as well with security communities, I think, where you have collective identity first and then, you know, security community practices, right? So it begins with an ideation and it leads into action. And I just make the, the wager, well, you know, that, that might be true, but what happens if we, again, reverse this causal arrow of social action and just think about it as action preceding ideas, right? As practice, so the ideas are sort of, that's where it was written right there, ideas are bound up in the practice. Knowledge is in the execution. Remember the chef, for instance, right, who's who probably doesn't have a full representation of what he's doing. Other examples that I use um, in the book from our daily lives, I think there's uh, this idea of verb conjugation. Think about it in your mother tongue. Uh, you probably don't need the conjugation tables to be able to conjugate the verb appropriately, right? Uh, 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 in a way that other people will understand. Uh, so the action precedes the representation. Now we probably have also a knowledge of representation, uh, but at, at a very young age, uh, probably not. Uh, so just, I guess here it's just a, uh, the idea is just to say, well, okay, uh, most surely ideas also precede action, but what about we, what about the other uh, direction in which uh, collective identity, in the case of security communities, comes from joint practices, right? So that, you know, that's the that whole communities of practice approach, uh, which is to say, well, you know, the weeness does not precede shared practices. Rather, it's sh the shared enactment of practices which leads to weeness, right? To a feeling, a collective identity. And so I just expressed it, you know, uh, to capture this in a sentence. It's not only who we are that drives what we do, it's also what we do that determines who we are, right? It's both ways, but it's just that most of our theorizing has been, a, uh, has been uh, put into the first part of the sentence. Now, the fourth implication, I guess, is kind of, you know, again, uh, already visible in the third one, which is to say, okay, but then why is it that certain groups of people start to share practices, to practice different deeds, different doings along similar parameters and in similar ways? And then I guess this takes us to the notion of social order, of power relationships. And what practice theory brings, I think, is, at least from a more micro perspective, is to understand that social order, power relationships, authority relationships, they work through self-evident practices, right? Uh, you get social order when people start doing a bunch of things as if it were the obvious commonsensical way to do things. And that explains, that. that's at least a practical instantiation of uh, social order. Uh, patterns of authority, of domination, you know, everybody driving on the right side of the, of the street, you know, to take a very obvious example. All of this is made possible by certain ways of doing certain things uh, that become part of a second nature, right? As soon as we start doing things as a second nature, uh, the social order obviously uh, is particularly uh, strong. Now, that's one of the main puzzles, I guess, or at least that's one of the main avenues that I believe is, is in need of uh, a theorization. And that's what I um, uh, purport to do in the book using uh, Bourdieu's conceptual apparatus, uh, you know, which I will try to keep as simple as possible uh, in this talk. I guess the, the, the best point of departure to understand Bourdieu's uh, social theory and sociological thinking is to try to imagine that the social 
uh, always exist in two different forms around us, right? One is in bodies, which include the brains, obviously. Uh, so within each of us, in the form of more or less articulate dispositions, which we acquire through experience, right? Through engaging with the will. Uh, these are intersubjectivized intersubjectivity in the sense that we're exposed to rules, ways of doing things, which we sort of come to embody as a more or less natural way to behave uh, uh, in the world. And again, you know, the example of babies learning the complex syntactic rules of language, uh, you know, makes that, that, that point. You know, it's not that the brain stops to function. It's rather that the brain functions in a slightly different way. And again, uh, Ted's works on the logic of habit, I think, are, uh, are moving in, 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 in this direction as well. Uh, so that's one state of the social, or one flow of the social, if you wish. Uh, the other flow is that the social exists in things, uh, institutions, uh, social artifacts, objects, uh, distributions of valued resources. Right? The United States exists in this room through uh, this flag, obviously. Uh, and uh, what Bourdieu leads us to see, I think, is that when we want to make sense of what people do, when we want to understand the practical sense, right? Uh, we need to understand how these two streams of the social, these two um, uh, uh, processes sort of converge more or less um, um, in different settings. So that this, the, the, the practical sense sort of stems from uh, the dispositions that are embodied in what Bolge calls the habitus, right? And our positions as agents in a social configuration, which Bolge calls a field, right? Uh, these positions are defined by the rules of the game. So think about it. There, there are certain rules in the academic setting which are very different from, you know, uh, I guess your, the rules in your family or other, you know, social settings. And those rules define different valued resources. Right? So in certain contexts, certain resources are valued and grant authority to those that possess them. Right. So again, to use the academic uh, setting, you know. Uh, professional titles, publications are certainly very useful resources. Being millionaire, I mean, that could help, but it, it doesn't have the same currency as in, say, the economic field when you want to buy stock options, right? So different configurations are structured by different rules of game and different distributions of valued resources. Um, now, I guess what's interesting about this view of, uh, of uh, social processes is that you can make sense of both order or stability and change. Um, order or stability, uh, you know, um, emerges when there is what Bourdieu calls a homology between the dispositions that agents embody and their positions in the game, right? So if, you know, uh, uh, when that happens, the practical sense become, becomes a kind of a self-regulating mechanism. And I'll show you in a minute how this has been defectual in the NATO-Russia relationship, right? Um, but when there is homology, when my dispositions fit with my position, say my dispositions as a junior academic uh, fit with my position defined by the, you know, the publications that I have and, and the, the titles, et cetera, then I will behave in tune with common sense, right? I'm not shaking the order of things. And so long as others do the same, we have social order, right? We obtain order. So that necessity sort of makes virtue if my dispositions are in tune with the position that I'm occupying as an agent. You know, the objectively impossible, given the distribution of resources, becomes subjectively unthinkable. And the, uh, the objectively plausible, what is possible for me given the resources I own in the field, becomes subjectively inevitable, right? So I do what the field seems to, uh, and distribution of resource rules of the game seem to 
uh, suggest. And so that Bourdieu calls it the orchestra without a conductor. Right? People all behave in tune with a kind of a common sense. Now, what's, what makes, I think, you know, um, society and politics interesting is that this homology between positions and dispositions doesn't obtain all that often. Right? Most of the time, what you will see is what he calls hysteresis, which is a kind of a mismatch or a disalignment between agents' dispositions, specific agents' dispositions, their inclinations and ways of acting, and their positions in given social configurations. So this is kind of, you know, this hysteresis is kind of a disconnect between habitus and feel, right? People behave out of place, right? or they tilt at windmills, or, you know, there are different ways. Uh, and when such a gap opens, what you will typically see empirically is a kind of a symbolic struggle over the meaning of the world, the terms of relationships among agents, right? Because agents are not disposed to act in, in a way that's in tune with their position in the setting. And, you know, an example that Bourdieu uses, which I, I find personally quite illuminating, is that of intergenerational conflicts, right? Uh, you know, the fact that different conditions of existence have imposed different definitions of uh, the impossible, the possible, the probable, uh, unsuccessive cohort of individuals. And this causes one group of individuals, one cohort, one generation, to experience practices or, you know, aspirations that another group, another cohort has, uh, which it believes is, you know, either unthinkable or scandalous or, or natural or reasonable, right? So you see this kind of a clash between positions and dispositions in that social dynamic. And, you know, in terms of the empirical case study, uh, that's pretty much what, I, what I've been able to observe, and that's pretty much what I've tried to, to, to trace, uh, this kind of hysteresis, this increasing mismatch between uh, the positions and the dispositions that players in this NATO-Russia diplomatic game um, uh, have embodied and enacted in practice. So I guess I'll move into my, my case study without uh, uh, further ado. Um, one of the main findings, uh, to put it in as general terms as I can, is uh, that the nonviolent element of disputes has sort of become a normal, yet not a self-evident practice between NATO and Russia. Right? So there is you know, something like a sea change compared to the Cold War um, era, uh, but this sort of pacification in practice remains limited. Um, the possibility of a military confrontation has receded, you know, significantly. Uh, there have been a huge amount of heated disputes between NATO and Russia, but all of them have been sold peacefully, right? So here you see the kind of, you know, security community-like processes. Uh, but what you also see is that the relationship remains gripped with a, a number, a very high number of symbolic power struggles, right? Struggles over the terms of the relationship or each player's positions in uh, the relationship. And the first step in my design was to try to reconstruct how, in practice, on the ground of international politics, to refer to the question I started to talk with, how on the ground of NATO-Russia diplomacy uh, 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 disputes are being sold, right? So I've done a total of uh, 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 69 interviews with security practitioners, diplomats, senior policymakers um, in Brussels, but also in Moscow, uh, Washington, London, Berlin, uh, Ottawa, name it. And the goal was to capture, or at least try to reconstruct as well as I could, the practical sense that practitioners come bring to the table of NATO-Russia diplomacy. Um, and again, the main finding, you know, which I've tried to probe through a, a bunch of, uh, a, a bunch, three main indicators uh, um, of the degree of embodiment or self-evidence, if you wish, of diplomacy, 
whether the possibility of using force was disappearing, uh, whether disputes were being normalized, and the nature of daily cooperation on the ground, right? military to military uh, for the most part. Um, and the evidence was quite mixed, right? Through interviews and practice analysis, um, the, uh, the evidence was quite mixed. You know, in one sense, uh, the possibility of, of using force had clearly faded from practitioners' horizon of possibility. That was quite obvious, and the book gives a lot of, you know, rich, I hope, rich data, which I can't get into. Obviously, the chapter is 50 pages long, so I can't really give you the detail, but I, you know, the, the big uh, picture is that uh, this thing has happened, but at the same time, it was kind of countered by um, a form of mistrust, a latent mistrust, uh, which was uh, not only inherited from the Cold War, but actually sort of grew uh, in the post-Cold War era, right? There are a bunch of um, um, uh, drivers behind that, which I tried to detail in the book. Um, one of them is the uh, enlargement to uh, Eastern European countries, which, you know, for very legitimate historical reasons, uh, are quite mistrustful of the Russians. Um, and also the interaction over the, po the post-Cold War era itself sort of bred that mistrust in the sense that even though disputes, most disputes have been uh, solved peacefully, uh, most of the time they've left uh, pretty uh, deep marks, especially on the Russian side, uh, because to a large extent, uh, the, the story of the post-Cold War era has been uh, mostly NATO imposing its way onto Russia. Um, the second indicator with regards to the normalization of disputes, uh, again, it was obvious speaking to practitioners that there is something, you know, they would describe their relationship in cycles or sine waves or, you know, they would talk of rough patches, but you could really get the feel uh, quite strongly using very specific example scenarios um, uh, of, of, uh, that uh, for them a dispute was not putting an end to the relationship, to the diplomatic relationship. It was kind of normal, right, to have those uh, those disagreements. So it's a kind of de-dramatization, if you wish, of the relationship, uh, which is quite different from the Cold War era, obviously. Uh, now, again, this sort of normalization was uh, seriously limited by a lack of momentum, right, in NATO-Russia diplomacy. Uh, NATO-Russia diplomacy, even at the lower level of diplomats of military officers, remains sort of uh, under the... the, the, the uh, it still depends very much on high politics, which makes it quite different from other, you know, Russian Western programs, such as cooperative threat reduction, for instance, now the Global Partnership, which didn't have this kind of very high politics dimension to it, right? And I, I've done interviews with uh, diplomats working in that field as well to just contrast NATO-Russia versus, say, cooperative threat reduction. It was quite clear that NATO-Russia relations were kind of specific in that sense. And third, uh, in terms of daily cooperation on the ground, uh, there's a lot going on. It's literally hundreds of officers and officials and diplomats interacting, doing stuff together, a lot of activities. Again, I would refer you to the book to have, um, have um, an idea of how many things NATO and Russia uh, uh, are doing together on a daily basis. It's quite something in terms of exercises, seminars, etc. cetera. Uh, but what this... Uh, sh sort of shows is not a convergence of ways of doing things, but rather how differently the Russians versus the NATO military officers and diplomatic official uh, do things, right? Uh, you know, uh, the clash in bureaucratic cultures or organizational ways uh, is made all the more obvious uh, by the fact that they do so many things. So again, you see that it's kind of mixed picture. And a conclusion that I reached out of the interviews, as kind of the first step in the design, was 
uh, I think, an interesting one in the sense that what you end up realizing is that, you know, the power relationship or the authority, to put it better, authority relationship in NATO and Russia is completely ineffectual. At least it was in 2006. There are two masters but no apprentices at the uh, NATO-Russia Council table, right? Both sides comes to this diplomatic dialogue in the, with the intent of, you know, imposing its practices, its ways of doing things onto the other, right? And obviously you can guess that NATO uh, typically thinks that it is the teacher, right, of norms, of practices, and that, you know, uh, uh, other, other partners will just implement those practices. And the Russians are sort of singular in, the, in that they've refused that authority relationship, right? At least they, they were refusing it in uh, 2006. And it shows on, in a number of things. Uh, one example I've used is, is how they come to try to devise joint standards of peacekeeping, right? Well, they just can't. Because even before they come to the substance of peacekeeping, they get stuck at, okay, whose standards are we going to apply? What, you know, who's going to make compromises? Who's going to adapt to the other? And they just can't move beyond that, right? So it, this symbolic power struggle is extremely strong in the NATO-Russia relationship. And in order to explain how we've got there, I try to look back into history, right? That's the second and third steps in the design. Um, I look back into the post-Cold War history and try to understand, okay, but, you know, how did diplomacy become a normal but not a self-evident practice, and why is it that this symbolic power struggle over the terms of the relationship has come to grip the enactment of diplomacy to that extent? Um, and so my historical narrative uh, sort of hinges on, like I said before in the theoretical part of the talk, between the uh, alignment or match or mismatch between, on the one hand, uh, positions in the field and dispositions in the habitus. And I tried to trace over time different uh, changes in three parameters. Changes in dispositions, or at least empowered dispositions. Uh, changes in positions, that is in stocks of valued resources. And changes in doxa, that is the rules of the game in the field of international security. Right? And those three variables sort of evolve slightly over the post-Cold War era and, give, and sort of help us make sense of the many highs and lows in the Russia-NATO relationship, right? which is something quite striking. If you look at it over 20 years, you know, honeymoons are followed by very rough patches, followed by honeymoons, and, you know, this kind of instability is in and on itself uh, an interesting uh, puzzle. And very quickly, because I don't want to take too much time, what you see is in the early 90s a very strong homology, right, a match between, especially on the Russian side, with NATO, the triumphant dominant organization in the field of international security, redefining the rules of the game, sort of moving away from this, you know, um, uh, um, uh, balancing and uh, military capital type of thinking towards something like the democratic peace, you know, and, and the cultural symbolic type of capital. Uh, and so the Russians, for, for a time, were very zealous applicants of these rules of the game. So if you look at not only in, in discourse but also in practice, at first they were uh, they aligned with the uh, Western members of the UN Security Council against Yugoslavia, for instance, uh, they supported NATO's partnership initiatives with former uh, uh, Soviet satellites. A bunch of practices that you can see actually, well, okay, the, you know, there was a match between Russia's position and its disposition to play the junior partner. And everything looked like it was going fine, right? Uh, I think it, the, the tides sort of turned in, in late 94. And I believe, I'm not saying it's the only um, thing that prompted the change, but I certainly believe it contributed when NATO decided to enlarge, right? Um, and the decision was announced and, and, and pretty much taken in, in uh, December uh, 94. 
And what you see from that point on, and what I try to do is try to understand why is it that the Russians reacted so negatively, right, uh, to this to this enlargement. I try to show how, for the Russians, this practice of enlargement sort of contradicted the game that NATO was uh, claiming to be playing, right, which was much closer to the OSCE type of cooperative, indivisible, uh, you know, mutual security. Uh, and for the Russians, obviously, enlargement meant exactly the opposite, exclusion, delusion, and stuff like that. So I try to make sense of how this sort of sparked new, or at least empowered, old, well, they were not exactly new, old dispositions of sort of great power in Moscow, right? And brought to uh, uh, power different types of, of uh, Russian politicians, but also sort of legitimated that reaction. And uh, what I try to trace is a gradual resurgence of great, the great power habitus in Moscow, right? Uh, so that, you know, that increasingly the Russians were behaving in a way that for NATO made no sense. And I trace it over specific examples like the negotiation of the founding act, which was signed in 1997, 90, uh, and in which you see that the Russians making a bunch of proposals for, you know, the relationship and NATO just dismissing those as completely out of place, right? T totally punching above its weight. And uh, what you get at the end of the day is the Russians uh, caving in. Um, then with Kosovo, obviously, uh, the mismatch uh, increases. You get high hysteresis. Uh, the great power habitus becomes dominant. Yeltsin leaves, obviously. Uh, and uh, for NATO, increasingly, and again, you know, I, I, I do a kind of a detailed diplomatic history of the Kosovo crisis before, during, and after to show how, for NATO practitioners, the Russians were increasingly playing a game in which they, uh, a game that they just didn't understand, right? To use words from uh, interviews that I've, that I've done. Um, so you see that this sort of uh, 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 mismatch between the Russian dispositions and its position as it's defined by the dominant country, uh, the dominant partner here. And finally, uh, quickly, after 9-11, what you see is a kind of a new sets of at least revised rules of the game in the field of international security, right? With the, the use of military force being somehow re-legitimated, uh, which sort of uh, played to the, Rus to the Russians' advantage for a time at least. And the reaction is very clear. The Russians all of a sudden were much more ready to take a lesser role, if you remember, in 2002, 2003, uh, with regards to NATO. I mean, just uh, you can look again at actions, practices, but also at discourse. And it's kind of obvious that for a time, the Russians were, again, ready to play a bit of a junior partner, not to the extent of the early 90s, but uh, certainly in contrast with uh, today. And just to conclude quickly, then, uh, what you get afterwards is the new wave of enlargement, uh, the color revolutions, uh, Georgia, and all these things, which sort of uh, spark again this old dynamic of growing hysteresis. And again, the, the interest of this, I think, is also to understand the development or the stalled development of security community. The argument is that you know diplomacy cannot become self-evident or commonsensical if people don't behave in tune with common sense, right? If the Russians and NATO don't think of themselves in the same world, well, obviously they can't come to practice a joint uh, a joint uh, deed, a joint diplomacy uh, in a commonsensical way. All right, I'll conclude uh, very quickly. I thought it would be interesting to sort of. Uh, try to think about what practice theory, how practice theory relates uh, to other IR theories. And instead of you know, conceiving of this as kind of competing paradigms, which I'm not sure I find especially productive, I thought, okay, let's try to use some of the insights that one can gain out of practice theory and piece together you know, the puzzle of the different IR paradigms and theories. 
And what I've tried to do is sort of find one common ground with uh, some of the main uh, IR theories and then uh, try to you know, uh, convince the readers that actually practice theory can have an added value. Uh, very quickly, so rational choice, I think practice theory can live very happily with this notion that people act you know, on the basis of their interests. Uh, but I believe it's, uh, practice theory is kind of, you know, because of those two states of the social that I, the that I explained before, helps us understand the social origins, not only of interest, but also of strategies. Right? In terms of po uh, political psychology, I think political psychology brings very valuable insights in terms of the cognition that practitioners go through in the daily life, right? which is uh, very real in practical terms. But again, in a similar way to rational choice, I think it sort of, sort of you know, um, enlarges the ontology of cognition by also you know, sort of tracing the culturally, historically inherited uh, roots of cognition. In terms of neorealism, I think uh, there is a very interesting and, and, and potentially productive point of convergence, which is the kind of positional thinking, right? The fact that position and structure determines uh, behavior. Uh, and uh, uh, I believe that's absolutely true. I think Bourdieu would also th think the same. Then what practice theory can, uh, can add is to remind us that those structures um, vary, right, from one social configuration context from the other, right, Those, so that we shouldn't only focus on distribution of material power, but rather sort of expand this notion and, and, and try to recover the different types of resources that agents in different contexts uh, value. Uh, Marxism, I think, uh, shares with uh, practice theory kind of a, uh, almost an obsession with power domination. Uh, again, I think what uh, practice theory can bring is kind of a, a focus on the symbolic nature of power, uh, with English school, I think practice theory uh, very much agrees that history matters. But uh, in terms of how it matters, I think uh, the English school has got the structural path dependency right. But I think practice theory, and especially Bourdieu's practice theory, can bring also how it, um, a mechanism to explain path dependency through agency, right, through the habitus, which is uh, itself uh, self-reinforcing uh, uh, in the form of de deposit of historical experiences. And finally, with regards to constructivism, uh, one of the main insights is that people attach meanings to objects and act on their basis. I think that's uh, Alex Wendt's uh, formulation. That's certainly very true, but I think uh, as a kind of a structural constructivism, what uh, practice theory reminds us is that meaning-making depends in part on one's position in the field, right? Uh, and the example that I use in the book is um, money, right? So uh, I think everybody will agree that money is socially constructed, you know, certain bits of paper with specific engravings count as money, that's socially constructed. But then if you want to make sense of the, of the of, of social life, of politics, the distribution of those specific bits of paper, paper also matters, right? So the position in the field based on the distribution of resources will also influence meaning making and social construction of reality. I think I'll stop there and uh, we'll be very happy to uh, take questions and comments. Thank you. As you wish. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I've never been offered that. I, I can do it. If you, I can try. All right. Where, where theories that focus on non-representation wouldn't see what the, we can see from the perspective of, of those theories. 
Um, I, I think what, uh, at least as, as if I, if I uh, stick to the, uh, the, the big insight that I, that I uh, tried to uh, formulate at the outset of the talk, you know, that practices of a logic uh, which cannot be fully grasped solely through, you know, representational models or stuff like that. Um, I think one thing that I, that especially a chapter that builds on interviews and, and practice observation and stuff like that helps us uh, see is uh, the extent to which um, when it comes to solving problems, uh, disputes, or disagreements, um, what you get is not simply, say, a clash of interests or, uh, or uh, dif you know, um, different positions in the distribution of material power, but also a huge stock of, uh, of uh, sort of accumulated practical engagement with one another, which really although it's tacit and articulate and, and, you know, asking diplomats about it was kind of tough because they, they don't really think about it, right? Uh, but to try to access it, reconstruct it, sort of made the, uh, the narrative much thicker. Uh, I, I think it's certainly right to say that there, there might be a clash of interest that the states are positioned differently in terms of material or military capabilities. Uh, but then how do these things, how do these structures, say, to take the example of neorealist distribution of material uh, capabilities, how do they get enacted, right? How do people figure out, you know, their position? Well, you could say they have charts, but when it comes to uh, more uh, sort of uh, subtle or more abstract uh, structures, intersubjective structures especially, um, then we kind of lack a mechanism, I believe, to understand why in practice, uh, you see a, a pattern that we capture structurally, right? And uh, and I I guess that's how I would I would I would describe the value added uh, in empirical analysis of the of the of the approach. Absolutely, yeah. I'm not sure you could have um, you could have necessarily grasped uh, the entire story that I've told uh, simply using you know with, without consideration for perhaps uh, practical knowledge or the tacit know-how. But, but you just did. Uh, I don't think so. Well, um, the uh, to give you an example, you know this um, in the. Um, the point that I made that in NATO-Russia relations there are like you know two masters but no apprentices, which is kind of a way to express the fact that in, in practice, right, when it comes to doing things together, there's not this effective authority or, or relationship between you know uh, uh, a player that you know NATO sort of you know in interview data are talking with or observing uh, NATO practitioners. It was very obvious that they sort of. Uh, most of these, given their experience, especially in the post-Cold War era, start from the premise that NATO sort of embodies the international community, right? That, uh, you know, because NATO has been so successful in socializing, say, Eastern European countries that they've come to think, well, you know, obviously, let's do it with more partners, and they'll react just the same way as Eastern European countries did, which is, you know, they're going to consider us as teachers, 
them as pupils, and you know that's the authority relationship. Uh, and uh, you know, I think there's value in trying to understand those premises, observing first. Um, I agree with you. You know, the uh, the uh, the ideal method would have been participant observation, right? So uh, let's say I would have invited myself at the NATO Russia Council table or uh, NATO Russia uh, military uh, committee, and you know, observe these guys interact, go to their military uh, exer- joint military exercises, and. You know, uh, I tried, but that, that was a bit uh, naive, I guess, when I started uh, studying this. There was no way to do it, right? So I tried to use uh, second-best approaches. And I, in the book, I, I, I acknowledge it very explicitly. I discuss the trade-offs of that, those second-best methods, uh, especially semi-directed interviews. I think I've tried to use semi-directed interviews in a way to get to practical knowledge. I mean, I explain exactly how in the book. Again, just to give you a couple of examples, um, uh, one way that I've tried to do it was uh, to, Swidler calls it hearsay ethnography. So given that I was not able to be myself an ethnographer and, and you know, being there as a person, observer, I sort of used my interviewees who had been there or who were there on a daily basis and sort of tried to get them to retell how they perceive interactions of other people, right? Because obviously the problem is if you ask them to tell about their own practices, you sort of put them in, in a weird situation where they observe their own practices and you kind of lose right, the practical feel for, for, for the game. But one thing I've realized is when you ask them to, to talk about other people's practices, so say the Russians about the French and, or the French about the Germans, really can get very rich data in terms of what's going on despite the fact that participant observation was not possible. There are a couple of other tricks that I've used um, to give you an, another example, um, I would submit them with specific scenarios, uh, not so much to know what they would do, but rather to try and infer out of their responses sort of the, the set of uh, practical assumptions from which they started in order to be able to say that. Right. So um, I, I would certainly uh, acknowledge that there are uh, certain limitations to that methodology. I've tried to um, sort of... Um, find ways to use some eye-directed interviews in a way that got into practical knowledge. I think it led me to find a couple of interesting things, such as this symbolic power struggles, uh, which do not necessarily, they're not necessarily completely different from what a more representational uh, uh, methodology would have given me. I think they simply complement what what one could have gotten. I think it makes the the narrative and the theoretical narrative richer, um, and hopefully I've been able to demonstrate it. But again, the book is much more detailed in terms of the empirical material, the data that I've been able to gather um, in the field. Alex? Um, well, that's an interesting talk, and I guess I, I don't envy you because the empirical bar for these arguments is so high. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Um, the the dispositions are sort of, uh, you know, like I said, it's subjectivized into subjectivity. So it's kind of the traces that your own practical engagement in the world leaves uh, in you, right? So in, in uh, the, the sort of uh, practical engagement in the world will leave you with certain inclinations in the future and in, in the present and the future in terms of how to act based on how you've act or how you've seen other people act, right? So that would be the more agentic side of it. Although, you know, in, you know, uh, society 
you know, habitus is kind of the society inside each of us, right? Um, so it's that's why I say subjectivized intersubjectivity. It's 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 the set of social rules of interactions around us which become sort of part of us because we live through them, right? Uh, whereas positions are are structured, right? Positions are part of a field which is structured along different axes, like I said, you know, depending on the valued resources. And the dispositions are sort of, you know, uh, carved out of occupying specific positions, right? So, it, so that's why, you know, when your position changes, as was the case with the Russians, for instance, uh, this great power habitus, and, you know, I don't think I need to convince you how, how important it is now in Moscow, right, is inherited from... from prior engagement in the world, prior to the end of the Cold War, right? It's just that for 10 years, it had been almost completely disempowered, right? From the actors are choosing to change their position, right? Uh, no, 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 no. The, I, there, there's not much, I mean, one, one critic, criticism, line of critique that one could raise against practice theory is that there's not much room for intentionality. I mean, uh, and that would be right. I mean, uh, uh, I, you know, the point is not that intentions don't matter, but rather that you... Uh, that uh, the drivers behind intentions are dispositional and positional, right? And perhaps there are intentions behind action, but uh, it's they're not doing the big causal role in explaining action. Um, I don't know that I've answered. So the the link between dispositions and positions, right? That was the question, or. Well, they all, they all, they all, they all strive for the highest position in the field, right? A field is like a game, right? Uh, that's why you know that the cover tried it, didn't really succeed, but I tried to sort of give that impression of a game, right? Of a, even a, a table game, right? Uh, in the case of IR, you know, because this is what it is from a Bourdieu perspective. Interaction is like a game with specific rules. The difference between uh, you know a, a game we play and and social games is that you don't decide to become a member of a game, you're born into the game, right? So you come to identify with the game and you're, uh, you're, you're fighting for the higher position through different strategies. Uh, uh, you know, the, he has this notion of the, the defenders, the orthodoxy, right? Those who defend the rules that are, because the rules are at their advantage and the uh, heterodoxy. Uh, but uh, the, the, what animates a field is a fight for um, dominating it, right? Um, and the struggle sort of uh, works through uh, gaining resources uh, and uh, changing the rules. Uh, the dispositions is just like the the um, the the, the uh, I would say the the practical accumulated distillate of your own personal and societal experience, which you bring with you, which you carry over into the game, right? Which sort of informs and and when both converge with what you're inclined to do and the social context in which you find yourself, that sort of, a, you know, converges and explains action. And that's why you see the Russians, for instance, with uh, NATO uh, enacting a bunch of quixotic practices, right? And again, recently with their proposal for a European security treaty, right? When I saw that, I thought, well, NATO's going to just, you know, ignore the initiative. And if the Russians are persistent, probably they'll, they're going to find a way to dismiss it, right? Because for, the, for NATO, this makes no sense. If you look at how they conceive of their relationship with the Russians, to sign that kind of treaty premised on a bunch of rules that NATO doesn't want to, uh, uh, exactly to uh, formalize or institutionalize, it made no sense. And throughout the 90s, what you see is this, right? The Russian dispositions of great power leading them to enact a bunch of quixotic practices, uh, asking NATO to give, uh, you know, to have... 
um, uh, have new members without uh, stationing troops, or you know, I, I give a bunch of specific examples that NATO practitioners were like, you know, no way, you know, that's not the way we work, and the Russians are not gonna. Uh, uh. So what you get at the end is because of this mismatch between dispositions and positions, you get a kind of a you know, a game that both players think they're, they they would hope they would play the same game, but they're they're just not playing the same games, right? Because the Russians would not recognize. Uh, the NATO imposed order of things, right? Of sort of democratic peace uh, that, that NATO was trying to promote uh, after the end of the Cold War. Alex? Um, two and a half questions. Okay. Um, so the first is, um, I guess I, I also wonder about, and I, I guess I have to wonder this, the value added question, especially when you characterize what you're talking about. It's really it's kind of structural constructivism. Um, and I guess what struck me is that the empirical story you told could have been told by any number of Maybe in the book that we get into providing evidence that other people might not have provided. But the overall outline, blind, outline that you've given us seems like a fairly standard story. Any constructivist would have given you a similar kind of logic. So I guess there is a value-added question. Thing, but even on the, the theoretical terminology, it seems to map, you know, Bourdieu has specialized terms for all these things. All those things have other labels and other traditions of... Yeah, that's certainly true, yeah. So there's, I think, both theoretically and empirically, it's a tough road that you're following, I think, that's one thing. Um, secondly, though, I wondered, is this really more a description? I mean, I can imagine a, a KKD person coming along and saying, well, this is just descriptive inference. There's no theory here. It's just description. Um, and and I, I think when you think about the things that lead to changes in the timeline, you know, these inflection points, those are exogenous shocks, basically. And 9-11 happens, or NATO intentionally decides to start expanding to Eastern Europe and so on. So the real theoretical work, the explanatory work, seems to be coming from outside. And what you're left with then is kind of a, a technique to describe what's going on on the ground in a very thick kind of way. And then that's the second question. And then the half question, which builds on this last point. I wondered whether, is this more methodology or is it a theory? <coughs> I think as method, where um, you know practices become the unit of analysis and so on, then I can see the value. Because other constructivists, let's say, haven't done that. Um, as theory, I'm not. I don't, I don't know what, the, what, what kind of theory this is. And I guess I'd like you to say some more words about that. Thanks. Thanks. Those are good questions. Um, I don't think it. Um, I don't think the explanation comes from the outside. Uh, and I think that's you know to sort of uh, uh, put the two questions uh, together. Um, I think the value added is in accounting for a bunch of processes that I would agree with you. Other IO theories might have thought about, right? I don't think, you know, nothing in this reinvents the wheel, right? That's not the point. The point, rather, is to say, well, look, um, you know, the positional logic that the neorealists are so big on, actually, you can sort of, you know, uh, there's a way to make this work within a, a framework that also accounts for dispositional uh, processes. And, you know, you don't need to force both sides to work together. It actually fit quite well once you open a bunch of variables, such as different axes, different types of structures, structured along different types of valued resources, et cetera. Um, the explanation doesn't come from the outside at all in the sense that uh, uh, the three parameters that, uh, that change in this narrative, uh, again, this positions, uh, position, that is, talks of valued resources that the different players uh, possess, and the rules of the game, uh, you know, the change in those is endogenous to the interaction. Uh, of course, not only to the interaction between NATO and Russia, but larger interactions. But I don't see those larger interactions, say, I don't see NATO's own process of transformation, for instance, as exogenous to uh, 
um, the, uh, the 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 story that I'm telling. It's it's very much part of it in the sense that it's all you know it's NATO trying to build on its dominant position to redefine certain rules of the game to its advantage, which disadvantages. Um, uh, the Russians in turn, right? So uh, in the same way, the resurgence of the great power um, habitus in, in, in Moscow because of NATO's enlargement, I don't think that's exogenous. I don't think you can say, well, uh, that, you know, that's caused by something totally um, uh, external. What I, what I try to show in the book is that there are other variables that sort of played out, domestic politics, the failure of transition, and uh, uh, name them, right? I, I acknowledge all of those. But what I try to show is that actually it's, it was very much also about NATO and Russia, the way that this entered the picture of their, uh, you know, uh, emerging post-Cold War relationship, uh, that it sort of, you know, shattered uh, the rules of the game as they were trying to be defined by, by NATO. NATO was trying to say, well, you know, uh, security is cooperative and indivisible, and the Russians were saying, okay, well, if that's the case, then that's fine. You can have new partners, and we agree with that, and we're going to partner with you as well. And then when this endogenous interaction through uh, the enlargement changes, well, the reaction is that the Russians sort of turn into progressively, increasingly, it took a, a good decade, progressively um, a sort of um, uh, into players that didn't want to play uh, subversive players of the NATO established order of things, right, increasingly. And, and what you see today is exactly that. The, the Russians trying to sort of develop a counter discourse to the NATO sort of democratic peace type of things. Um, and, uh, and I think that the best way to explain this, uh, I'm not saying that there are no external uh, uh, factors, but I think the story that I tell is really very much about variables inside endogenous to the relationship that evolved given the evolution of their own practices. So it's practices explaining practice. I mean, I, I totally agree. There is the kind of a circularity, uh, which I would not deny. I think it's part of uh, I think it's part of social life anyway. So I guess our, our theory should be able to sort of grapple with that. Uh, practices explain practices, but then there's still value in uh, sort of superimposing to the study of practices. Um, Bourdieu's framework or another, which sort of tries to show the, 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 the changes between those two streams of the social, right? So I explain practices, I reconstruct practices, but I also tell the story from two other different perspectives. One is the structure, how the structure changed, and I try to show how the rule of the game evolved in the immediate aftermath of the, post -cold, of the end of the Cold War, then 9-11, uh, and also the dispositional um, story. So at the end of the day, you kind of have three, if you wish, plots that you bring together and in my mind, that's the value added. Uh, aren't those three plots basically agency structure and then what kind of interaction process? Redescribed in a different terminology, but... Uh, they're, they're, I mean, the, the positional story is a structural story. story. The dispositional story is not only agentic, though. I mean, it's, uh, again, it's society inside of agents, so I think it's, it's bridging. It's, you know, it's kind of suspended between uh, structure and agency. And then I think the one story that's really... Um, sort of um, uh, um, more specific to this narrative is the, is the practice one, right? Which is, um, you know, uh, looking at the world from, you know, from, from the practitioner's point of view. So you could say it's an agentic story, but then if it's an agentic story, it's an agentic story that hasn't been told very often, at least in IR, I think. I would, I would, I would make that claim that, uh, you know, some people have tried to do it, but um, uh, I think there is still much more that we can gain by, by looking at, or at least uh, putting the practitioner's point of view under the light of our theoretical models, but not ignoring what those practitioners are, 
are, are doing and the way that they engage with the world, right? Instead of construing the, the, you know, their interaction just as a spectacle that we observe, try to, under, to construe their deeds as sort of problem-solving, right? Which is forward-looking as opposed to what we do, which is much more backward-looking. Um, so I guess, yeah, I mean, it, there's a bit of this agency structure brought together, but then I think there is plus this, this uh, perspective. And hopefully there's, yeah, I, I, would, I would think that we see some things that we wouldn't see otherwise by, um, by uh, sort of tying together those different uh, narratives. Uh, yeah? Um. Yeah. The field as such doesn't exist, right? And then you just eliminate the structure category and say, really what the field is, it's a summary of everything that's going on at the dispositional level, right? So it's, you know, when you talk about rules, it's not like there's a social rule that exists in abstract such that NATO becomes powerful and then flick changes the universal rule, right? They can only change rules by changing others' dispositions. So I mean, it seems like you could even, I mean, I, you know, this, this would probably irritate a lot of Malthusians. You could, it seems like you would have resources to just jettison field as anything other than a methodological uh, abstraction. I, I mean, uh, I agree that field is just a methodological abstraction. The reason why I would not dispense with it is that, uh, you know, in the book I call it positional agency, and I, uh, you know, where you sit is what you do. And I see this as a very practical mechanism, right, which, you know, uh, you don't need necessarily to think about it or reflect about your position in the field to act in accordance with your position in the field. You know, again, that's one way that I think practice theory helps make sense of something that was already out there. You know, positional thinking that's already out there in IR theory, but how does it work, right? And uh, you know, I try to give a bunch of examples of this. For instance, I think you can explain NATO's enlargement practices by positional agency. So I would not dispense with the concept of field because you know, uh, if you want to understand why NATO enlarged. I mean, obviously, you can look at the strategizing and, you know, the planification, the cultural norms, the, the identity. You can look at all these things. But you can also look at the fact that in terms of owning resources, they were so dominant that – and their advantage was so uh, um, uh, obvious in cultural symbolic, you know, resources, you know, uh, narratives of legitimate governance and, and, and et cetera, that, you know, in a way, given where they were seated in the field of international security – it was kind of, you know, the natural way to go was to sort of build on this position of advantage and sort of slightly alter or considerably alter the rules of the game to their own advantage. Uh, the same works with the Russians. I think you can make sense of the so many Ru of Russia's quixotic practices, again, in the run-up to the founding act, right, in 97. Uh, the Russians used a bunch of things that you can't explain without, I think, in, at least in some measure, positional agency. The fact, for instance, that, uh, you know, they... Uh, they, uh, they uh, said that they would, uh, and they did uh, 10 years later, station nuclear forces in, uh, in Kaliningrad. Or the fact that they said they would, uh, uh, again, which they did 10 years later, revise their nuclear doctrine. At the time for the NATO practitioners, right, this behavior based on a form of capital that was kind of devalued as opposed to like claims of being democratic, democratic or stuff like that, uh, you, it's hard to explain those practices which sounded so awkward from the NATO point of view outside of the fact that the Russians had absolutely no cultural symbolic resources. 
you know, they were not able to develop their own narratives of being, you know, uh, 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 you know, say, boasting democratic credentials, right? For instance, so all they had was a bunch of old-fashioned, by NATO's new terms, resources, you know, nuclear warheads and tanks, and uh, and also, you know, sort of old-fashioned institutional ties to their uh, immediate neighborhood, right? And that's what they did, right? They restored the CSDO. They tried a bunch of things that, in the game that NATO was trying to play and promote quite successfully with other players, uh, you know, you, it's hard to explain Russia's practices, which were really self-defeating to an extent, outside of the fact that, well, that's the, that's the resources that they had at hand, right? And... Uh, and they made use of those. And uh, the thing is, in that new game, those resources had um, much less value, and it couldn't help them get their way with NATO, right? Uh, so I, I really think, you know, as much as I agree with you that the field is a methodological construct, the fact that you can map a distribution of resources, right? it's kind of a topographical analysis, right? You can, you can map the players in comparison to one another in terms of resources. I think that's, in terms of explaining practices, it really adds to the story. So, uh, so I would, I'm not sure that I would dispense with it altogether. Yeah. Uh, in your story, it seems that in an attempt to foreground the inart inarticulate um, practices, uh, it seems there's nothing at all in kind of the story. So in our interactions between NATO and Russia, uh, Russia is trying to NATO is trying to get Russia uh, accept those practices, but, but, but Russia sort of refuses to abide by those practices. Um, I was wondering, couldn't there be some sort of in, uh, uh, a, an internalization process wherein Russia sort of buys into some of the practices and not in others? Um. I mean, there is there is something. The reason why I didn't use the the internalization uh, vocabulary is that, it, for, in my mind, it was too tied to uh, this scholarship that emphasizes ideas and uh, norms and sort of explicit or representational knowledge, right? Uh, you know, if you look at con most constructivist literatures, you know, it's all about you know certain norms, certain ideas being you know through socialization, like the way you said, being internalized by other uh, players. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that this doesn't happen. It definitely happens. Uh, but I think it captures only one side of how we come to develop new practices, right, or adopt or enact different practices. And there's a very important side, which is inarticulate, right? I mean, sociologists, uh, not sociologists, psychologists call it implicit learning. Right? And again, read Ted Hopf's work. I mean, you know, in psychological theory and cognitive neuroscience, it, it, there's, a, you know, an increasing amount of evidence that most of the things we learn are not represented ever in our in our brains or bodies, right? Uh, you know, just learning violin, for instance, right? Uh, but rather things that, you know, so we kind of internalize them, but it, not in the sense that internalization has been used in IR. So that's why I sort of, you know, I stuck to Bourdieu's notion of embodiment, which is imperfect too, because it gives the impression that all of a sudden the brain becomes unimportant, which is not the point. Uh, but I think the, the goal was to say, well, you know, Learning or develop or adopting new practices is not, it doesn't go through learning a new representation of doing something. It actually goes through, uh, you know, uh, mimicking, you know, what uh, um, uh, he calls it, uh, mimesis, uh, you know, kind of a master apprentice type of relationship in which people in authority, uh, you will tend to reproduce 
uh, their ways of doing things, right? And hence the impossibility of a practice to become commonsensical outside of some form of authority pattern um, uh, that sort of makes certain practices. Look, you know, uh, any practice, any time you do something, there is a claim implicit in it that this is how things should be done, right? Or that this is how things are done. Right? There is a power, sort of a claim to authoritative knowledge in each and every practice in a way. And now this claim most of the time works because you're sort of only reproducing what other people have been doing. Now when sometimes you, you want or you just happen to uh, change some practices, most of the time you will fail, right? Unless you're somebody very authoritative. But, and that's because the claim that, that you're making and doing certain things in a certain way just you know, f fell on deaf ears. Uh, and that's what happened with the, with the, I think, with NATO uh, and, and its relationship with the Russians. It's, it's this uh, authority relationship which was undermined, I believe, in large part by NATO itself and rendered inefficient that sort of uh, made the pacification process so, um, so difficult and limited 20 years after the end of the Cold War. Yeah, just behind. Well, you know, that's, that's one thing that uh, as I was researching that book and writing that book, I kept thinking, you know, I, I wish I would do and, and hopefully I will do one day uh, uh, some more work on trying to capture legitimacy as a much less representational uh, political dynamic than what you just said. I believe that, uh, you know, uh, most of the time when I recognize certain ways of doing things personally from my own life and, and, and I would bet it's the same for you, when I recognize certain ways of doing things as legitimate or socially acceptable, it's not because I've thought about whether it's socially acceptable. It's because there is something, you know, going on largely tacit and articulate that links me to the enactor, the practitioner, you know, and that makes me feel like, okay, this is how things are, or this is how things are done, right? And uh, there is legitimacy in, in this, you know, master-apprentice relationship. It's just I think we just don't have the tools to understand the unreflexive or inarticulate mechanisms of legitimacy, right? I'm not saying that legitimacy is not also something that people think about, debate about. Obviously it is, right? And, and in politics, a lot of time that's what we see, people debating about whether it's legitimate or not. But also a lot of time, a lot, on, on, in, in many of those occasions, what you see is legitimacy claims successful or, or, or failures uh, working through processes, relationships of authority that are never fully articulated, debated. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, 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 can't, uh, I can't say that I could answer your response because I don't think that's something that the book does, um, you know, going into that direction. Uh, but I certainly think it's an extremely productive uh, avenue for research. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who was first. That's the tragedy. Oh, that's a two-finger. Hot pursuit. All right. I'm ready, Ted. Um, so, so you, you disagree with, with its premise. You don't think that Not, all t not, a, not necessarily, no. I don't think so. I think it's much easier for us to study it when people talk about it, right? So that's, you know. Can you I, give an example of, of unreflective consent or unreflective legitimization? Um, 
Well, I mean, you know, I like to think of examples from my daily life. I don't know if it's a good strategy, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, uh, my relationship with my with my baby daughter seems to be that whatever I do, she takes it to be the order of things, right? That's the way thing. That's the way the world goes round, right? I mean, it's a different type of legitimacy, obviously, than political attribution of uh, legitimacy. But I think it's still this sort of. You know, if you take authority to rest in, on some form of you know lit claims of legitimacy, which I believe is what authority is, I think you see it enacted there, never disputed, debated, thought about, but just enacted. I'm, I'm confused. You're, you're saying that she thinks of you as legitimate, or you think that what you're doing is legitimate? Well, the way that she responds to my deeds seem to be that whatever I do, that's the way that you know the authority relationship seems to work quite well without the need to sort of uh, debate about it, right? Okay. Okay. I don't think she thinks about it. <laughs> but you think that even though she well, the fact that she reproduces my ways of doing things almost 100% well suggests that there is an authority relationship going on. Authority and is one thing, legitimacy is another. Well, I don't. Yeah, but I I would agree that there's a a, a reason why we have two concepts. But I would certainly think that. Authority is not possible without some form of legitimacy, right? Like authority, a main distinction between authority and, and say, coercion, right, is the addition of legitimacy in the relationship, right? Um, but it's just, I mean, I think, you know, this, this thing shows how bad I think we are to understand legitimacy as a practical engagement with certain political, or not political, social actions. We, we, we you know, we, we don't see even, you know, basics, in this case, master-apprentice relationships as based on some claims to have the legitimate way to engage in the world. Well, that's what a master is to the apprentice, right? It's somebody who knows how to do stuff and his practices have to be emulated by the apprentice. I think there is legitimacy going on here in terms of this is the legitimate, this is the, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, I mean, in practice, I guess you could say this is a workable way to go up, uh, about, say, uh, whatever, doing X. Um, but, uh, for me, it makes uh, actually it, it sort of you know illustrates quite well that um, there is something to be there is something to be researched uh, more there. And uh, but I didn't, uh, so you know I'm, I'm just talking out loud, <laughs> which is never a good idea. Yeah. Um, this is a three-part, so I apologize for the length. Yeah. Um, and they're sort of very basic questions. I'd, I'd like first of all for you to say more about whether, from from your practice theory point of view, practical knowledge is non-representational or non-representational. So is it inarticulate or non-articulable? Because I think you're causing a dilemma here. If it's, if it's at bottom not representable, then doing research on it would seem to be impossible. But if it is representable, then it seems like the value added is at least partly diminished because um, if, every, if, every act, if every act that falls from my practical knowledge uh, can be represented as something that um, rests on a conscious choice, then what we've been doing all along doesn't seem to be so um, deficient from the point of view of practice theory. The second question is um, the move from practical knowledge to practices themselves. It seems obvious to me that practices contain both practical knowledge and representational knowledge. Mm -hmm. So when I'm riding a bike or I'm chopping an onion, I'm both not thinking about what I'm doing and I'm also thinking about what I'm doing. Sure, in yeah. ways. Um, and that leads into the third question, which is that politics seems to be a highly representational practice most of the time. And especially political change seems to be highly representational. So when I'm trying to change what I'm doing when I'm riding a bike because it's not moving my knees properly, um, I need to think about it, uh, articulate to myself what I'm doing wrong, and try to figure out what I'm doing wrong, and then change the practice. 
So it seems that the change part of the story is always going to be coming from something that is representational and intentional, as opposed to something that is just taken for granted as part of the background of my life. So hopefully those two sort of form a coherent question. Thanks um, for, for the question. Uh, the, um, I, I think practice, uh, practical knowledge is um, by definition an articulate, but I, I don't mean that this, uh, it, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily impossible to articulate, right? Uh, now the reason why I would already sort of contradict myself is in saying that uh, if, you, uh, if you do an interview, right, with a diplomat, then you try to put him or her in the position of observing his or her own practices, I mean, you've already distorted, you know, the practical relation to the world. It cannot work that way, right? So I don't think that you can count on the practitioners themselves to make articulate the articulate knowledge that goes into their practices. I don't think that's going to take you very far. I think you can do it yourself. Uh, you can try to do it yourself. Of course, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, my, then my reconstruction of practical knowledge is 100% articulate, but that's the reason why you do several interviews in different settings. You try to triangulate with other data, right? You know, you try to come as close as possible to what it is to be a practitioner. Um, and, uh, but I, I don't think that the way to do that is to ask the practitioner, her or himself, uh, to articulate. Actually, when you try to do that, and then, you know, uh, especially when in my first interviews, I might have tried to do that mistakenly, you know, practitioners, and it, you would act the same as a practitioner, you know, they react oddly. They're like, you know, you're kind of an unsettling something that, they that they've probably never unsettled, just like the example of the arrow, right? Probably some of you thought, well, what the hell is he talking about, right? I mean, you follow an arrow, that's kind of clear, right? And I got that reaction sometimes from practitioners that were like, you know, <laughs> What, what is this, right? So, so I've had to find kind of indirect ways to sort of access this um, inarticulate, sort of try to distill assumptions out of what they were talking about. And it's kind of, it's, it's not easy at all. But, uh, but the, the point to say that it's inarticulate is not that it's not possible to articulate it, but I don't think it's your best source would be the practitioners themselves, to make the long story short. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, representational knowledge and practical knowledge, I agree with you. It's always a combination in practices. The distinction really is just that I've that I've put is really is just uh, you know uh, a heuristic one, right? Just I guess the I guess what I was trying to do here was just say, well, you know, uh, guys, we've we've always looked at this. Why don't we look at that side too, right? But it was not to say these are completely different uh, ways of engaging with the world. It's just more to say, you know draw attention. Um, now, politics is highly representational. Uh, that's, a, that's a comment I've had um, uh, uh, quite a few times, and um, uh, um, I believe it's, it's absolutely correct. But my argument is precisely that even in those situations where, um, you know, as in politics, where what you have is debate, argument, uh, rhetoric, right, also, you know, strategizing, uh, judgment, right, which is the basis of politics, um, policy making, you know, I'm just naming a bunch of things that are, you know, like you said, highly, that have a very thick representational component. Uh, my point is that even in those practices, you know, what we've done so far was always to look only at the representational side, whether it's through rational choice to understand strategic uh, planning, whether it's um, uh, through, uh, uh, you know, normative uh, uh, rule following to understand uh, appropriateness, these things. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, well, that's, that's certainly helpful, but then 
these guys, when they rationalize, when they strategize, they still start from somewhere, right? They still, they, 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 you can't think from scratch. You can't. I don't think you can, right? Even as representational as your thinking is, there is a background. And again, the, um, the, uh, the, uh, the example of the arrow or of cooking or in diplomacy, I think you can also say that, you know, I try to give that example that, you know, you know, um, in diplomacy, when you read textbooks or, or books that have been written by former diplomats, uh, one of the most constant reaction that you get in, in relation to, you know, more theoretical literatures is that, you know, of course there is uh, rationality and, and strategic planning in diplomacy, but it's also, you know, they call it common sense, they call it, you know, tact. Um, a bunch of popular categories that are actually, you know, intuition, experience, uh, skill right, that belong much more to uh, uh, what it is that cannot be fully represented. Right? So they describe their own practices, their own uh, deeds, in terms that are not necessarily contradictory to what rational choice or, or constructivist uh, theory would expect, but it's just it doesn't capture uh, uh, what the, the full substance of the interaction, which also has that dimension of uh, non-represented um, uh, knowledge, right, which is bound up in the practice, right, instead of just as in rational choice, well, you have ideas, desire, preferences, and then you get action, right. There's something that seems to be part, when you talk to practitioners, of the action itself. Um, so, um, so even in the most representational practices, I think there's still value in understanding how that representational dimension becomes possible out of a more practical feel for the game. I would, I would, I would, I would think. Um, thanks guys for coming. Um, so I'm going to piggyback on, on all this a little bit but ask it in a different way, which is that um, I wonder uh, what are the assumptions that Bourdieu has in his initial studies that we then have to jettison or that don't apply in international politics and whether or not this complicates our view, right? So Bourdieu's analyses are drawn either from a non-modern context or from class distinctions in France and, and where it has class and what's in the title in France. Um, so this, these, in both these places, he can assume a stable background of maybe a, a common representation of all the people, and that allows him to focus on practices. However, we don't have a stable common background, at least not to the extent that would exist in either of those contexts in international politics. So I wonder if that fools us into thinking that um, practices are important in that context, and that it's doubly not applicable in this case. So then that leads me to ask the question, uh, are these really competing logics of action? No. Um, right. So you just answered that right now. Um, now, if I were, <laughs> but if I were, if I were trying to take your tack, which is what you're just sort of defending what you're saying right now, which is to sort of put representation sort of underneath practice a little bit, um, I would try to say that old constructive that, that using a model of the world is a form of a practice, right? And that using a model, using representational knowledge, is a learned practice in and of itself, right? right. And then I see lots of observable implications that I'd like to see in the in the empirical place. So if the dependent variable is uh, security community, then we have, we have alternative explanations. One is that practices lead to security community. A second is that collective identity leads to security communities. And third is that whatever power or rationality in the mainstream literature leads to security communities. But then you have something that divides those first two hypotheses, which is that there should be, there should be a history of the practice of Russia thinking that the world is the way that it is in 1815, right? They should have a set of practices that lead them to engage in a model-type practice. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. 
So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history in Russia of that practice of using a model. And maybe that might be a way to show that there's a value added and that there's actually something distinct between the old school constructivism, um, which I share your critique of the logic of appropriateness, but for a different reason than you, which is because I like the Went and the Adlers in the 1990s, and I don't like the logic of appropriateness stuff that came later. Um, so I, I appreciate the critique of logic of appropriateness, but sort of because I want to be representationalist about it. So I'm wondering if, but if you were going to convince me, you'd have to show me that Russia using a representation was itself a practice and that this practice has a history. Uh, I mean, it's, that's certainly a very good point in the sense, and I think that's a totally legitimate uh, criticism that one can make of, of the book, that if you want to understand practice, you really have to historicize, right? Because, you know, again, if, if practice explains practice, it means that if you want to understand the present or the future, you need to look back into the past, right? And uh, admittedly, uh, 20 years window, uh, I guess there are historians in this room, uh, they will not consider this, you know, going very far back into the past. Um, you know, in the book, I didn't do it. Um, I can tell you that I've, I've written something afterwards which looks back, of, I was telling Ted while we were working, a full millennium of Russian-Western interaction. I've written that with Ever Newman, who knows Russian history, and I don't. You know, even in comparison to Ted, I'm just very bad. But I, I've teamed up with people who are better than me to sort of show that those practices that I'm talking about in the 90s you can actually trace their roots and actually you can show continuity over a thousand years of Russian-Western interaction. And we try to show how that was possible. How First, how is it possible that this interaction of like, the, basically what we observe is Western diplomats, Western, I mean, you know, depending on the epoch, European, North Atlantic, blah, blah, versus Russian or Soviet or pre-Russian, you know, state representatives, and what you see is the same pattern for a millennium of the Western uh, state representatives sort of uh, um, looking at Russia's practice, diplomatic practices, as either awkward or untimely or trying to punch above their weight or, you know, there's a pattern which is agentic, not structural, that lasts over a millennium in which you see, and we trace it back to Russia's interaction with uh, the Golden Horde uh, diplomatic field, right? It was totally foreign and alien to the European field and the, the Soviet experience as opposed to what was going on uh, uh, in, uh, in, on the European theater at the same time. So I would agree with you that, you know, for a full explanation, you really need to look back at history. Um, I, you know, I didn't do it in the book because I think my, my, my objective was slightly different, not so much to explain um, where practices come from, but rather... Uh, how how it is possible that uh, despite conditions that seem to be in place for pacification in the early 90s, uh, it didn't really happen, right? So I guess it's it's a question of objective. But then in that piece, whatever Newman, the, the goal was really to show, you know, there's something that's going on here that's really puzzling, you know, that for a millennium, uh, two sides of a of a diplomatic dialogue would keep having the same social dynamic along different per parameters, obviously, throughout history, uh, but essentially a, a similar structure, not a structure, a similar, well, yeah, it's a structure, it's a microstructure of interaction uh, that's kind of premised on awkwardness, on timeliness, uh, you know, sort of quixotic practices. Um, so, uh, in a sense, Alex's point was, you know, you, I wouldn't want to do that, that kind of stuff. I've actually not gone far enough in the sense that in terms of history sizing, what I'm talking about 
you know, another book would be required. I would agree with you. I don't think there's any way around that. If you want to explain, you know, practices, you need to look at past practices. Um, for me, that's not so much of a problem. It's a problem in terms of resources and time. Uh, but in terms of theoretical logic, uh, I'm, I'm willing to live with that personally. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Ted. Thanks, Ted. Thank you.